0: everyone it's Artie from the human chapters we're just going to dive straight into it today um, so human chapters a bit of an introduction about it humans are living narratives with the past present and future these narratives constitute of a number of chapters across the lifespan the aim of these conversations is to highlight a chapter of the narrative and unpack its connection to other chapters I don't care whether people are natural storytellers, but I truly do believe each person has a story to tell. And our acknowledgement to country, we acknowledge the, the traditional owners of the land on which we are. We pay respect to their tribal elders, past and present and emerging. We continue to celebrate their culture and we acknowledge them, the memory of their ancestors. And today we're going to be speaking to Hugo. All right, the floor is yours,
1: Hugo. Hi, my name is Hugo, I'm from uh, United Kingdom. I am currently 22 years old, and today I just wanna be talking about uh, a lot of the transitions and big changes uh, that 18 to 25-year-olds typically go through and retelling a lot of those changes through my own stories and my own experiences of these changes uh, from when I was 18 to now 22.
0: Beautiful. All right, so Hugo, um, before we cut out and frozen technological issues started, you were telling us about at the age of 18 what actually um, mm-hmm. the transitions you went through.
1: Yeah, so um, I was talking about beforehand, before the technology cut out, unfortunately, um, when I was 18, I went off to, to university. Um, which is what uh, a lot of students are doing nowadays. I think 50% of all students are going on into further education, uh, going across to uni. So a lot of a lot of 18-year-olds are going through this transition, 18, 19-year-olds. One of the really daunting things about going across to uni is when you're at school, your classes are very small in comparison. Your actual whole school in comparison is, is much smaller. You know the classes you're involved in are kind of 30 people, whereas you're going across to, to lecture halls of like. You know 150 people. So you know immediately, you know, asking questions is out of the window. Like things like that just don't happen anymore. You know, in addition to that, if you're, you know, if you were really, really academic at school, you had a really strong academic identity, or for example, you were really, really good at sport, you had a really, really strong kind of football or rugby identity, and then you go across the uni and you realise actually, do you know what I'm, you know, I was really, really good top of my class at at school, but now I'm at uni, I'm actually in the middle. And psychologically, that's a really, really big adjustment that a lot of people have to go through, which they may not have ever gone through beforehand. Especially if they've gone to you know, the same kind of local schools their entire life, have the same social group. When you go across the university, your kind of social environment just explodes. And there's so many more people, so many more you know, interactions and that kind of thing to be had. So for a lot of people, especially people who are more introverted, it's really, really scary. <laughs> um, and I think that's probably probably a good place place to start. Um, Individually, for me, I went to Swansea University. Um, background on me: I played a lot of football when I was at school, uh, and I was pretty good for my school. Being you know with it being a predominantly a rugby school as well. Um, so for me, psychologically going across the university and then playing in the third team for the first year, having played in the first teams of my previous school for you know five six years previously. That's very, very difficult to accept. You know, football was a very, very strong part of my identity. And then having somebody basically turn around and be like, actually, you're not, you're not that good. And all this time you've invested in a sport actually isn't, you know, you're not as good as you think you are. is psychologically really, really tough. And one of the things that people probably don't understand about when you go across the union, when you go through these is, especially to do with this, sorry, especially to do with my example, you know, that you can relate, like I said uh, earlier in terms of if you're really, really academic and you go across there and there's far more academic people there. Psychologically, it's really, really tough to come back from that that realization that you're not as good as you think you are and that something you invested so much time and so much energy into it. There are other people that are just better than you already. Um, For me, having a, so for me, that was really, really difficult. The other thing as well, having gone across to uni, was I went in through clearing. So it meant that I didn't get student housing. So, oh, sorry, student accommodation. So what that meant was I had to try and find people online to live in a flat with that i never met before. So, you know, having to put myself into even more kind of, you know, uncertain waters in terms of the people I was going to have to live with and all of this. So basically what that meant was for the entire first year at uni, I didn't have any friends really because I didn't get on with, I didn't get on with my flatmates, and I, you know, I wasn't really, I wasn't really in the know about. Um, uh, sorry, because I wasn't in student accommodation, I wasn't really in the know about all the social events and all those things going on. So I missed out on a lot of that, and what that meant was that I didn't have too many friends on my course. I didn't have, but well, any friends in the house. So me having gone from, you know, my school, which is probably big the most, across to university. Going to this much larger pool and not really knowing anybody was extremely, extremely daunting.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and from stories that I've spoken to about to other people, a lot of people go through the a lot of people go through this 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 change. And it's how do you then you find yourself in a sticky situation where you're on a big course with loads and loads of people, you don't know many people there, and yet you've got to do another two years on that course with people there how do you get yourself out that? and how do you start approaching that to try and make friends and all that, you know, especially for, for me, fortunately I'm, I'm slightly more extroverted. So it's a bit easier for me, but for a lot of other people who are very introverted, it's the most scary thing ever going and approaching people trying to be like, can I be your friend? <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that's what it's like. Um, so in terms, of, in terms of that environment of just going from this very, very small local environment, going across the university, much wider, much wider pool, loads of people, really, really daunting. One of the other things to do with the university as well, and this is very, very apparent, uh, is that the rates of student depression and anxiety and students seeking counselling has increased consistently year on year. And this is because people are going through the same things that I was going through. Was that They were going across to university from, you know, you know go, so going to university, completely different environment. They didn't know anybody there and they were having to find their own way throughout this entire process. And if, you, if for example, you've been, you know, had the same mates mate since the age of five, you've all gone to the same school, you know, you've all gone to the same secondary school, all same, gone to the same college, and then suddenly you've all gone in your separate ways, and you have to find new friends. You've never learned to make new friends since age five. You're suddenly, having you're thrown into this environment, having to, you know, create these more meaning, meaningful, meaningful, friendships. One of the other things as well, which this this ties into it, um, is, uh, this ties into a lot of it is our generation has grown up with social media. So what that means is with social media is that you have what are known as a lot of fake friends. So you have people who are, who are followers who you follow, they follow you. Uh, but actually when it comes down to it, they, they're not somebody you feel that you could rely on in a situation or feel like you could really talk to somebody about, you know, if you're suffering uh, mental, you know, with your mental health, with your, you know, anxiety, depression, they're not really somebody you can rely on. Now, a lot of people, I think I read a study the other day. um, For reference, I study sports psychology now. And when I was at university, I studied sports science. Um, But I have a strong, strong passion towards psychology. So I read a lot of studies in psychology. But um, uh, the other day I read that, uh, um, uh, yeah, I read that uh, basically a lot of individuals uh, feel as though they would not be able to rely on these Instagram friends to to actually help them through any potential trauma. And then what they do is obviously because, of, because they can't rely on these friends on Instagram and that kind of thing, they channel, they do what's called, they basically channel their anxiety and their depression through posting on social media. And... Basically, what happens is is that when you when you post on social media and you get a response, you get what's called a hit of dopamine. And dopamine is the same kind of addicted uh, hormone that gets released when you gamble, when you uh, drink alcohol, when you take drugs. Um, so what individuals do then is that in order to get this hit of dopamine and feel good, you know, the fact they're suffering mentally, um, they continually send out these messages to these fake friends, or they send out they post stories hoping that somebody will just give them a response to make them feel good. Mm. Whereas obviously what happens is, is that, you know, people respond, they get a good hit of dopamine and then that's it. They never have any real proper conversation, any real meaningful conversation about what they're actually going through. They just use this as a really maladaptive coping mechanism. And that's essentially what, what happens a lot with, with individuals when they go off to universities. They, they basically, they don't make any meaningful new meaningful friends because they they haven't learned to for years and years and years. Um, and then in addition to that, they're obviously more exposed to social media uh, and all of these kind of fake friends and, and also, sorry, as well, fake friends and also the fact that everything is published on social media. So for example, if you're at university and, uh, and you know, you're know you in your course like I was and then I didn't realize there was a social event for my course going on, I'd look on social media and be like, oh, that's where the rest of the people in the course are. They're all there. And then that's when FOMO comes into it. And, you know, you start to paint this really ugly picture of how all these small little things start to build up and up and up and up into something much, much bigger. Um, and I think before I kind of confuse anything, anything more, I'll, I'll let you kind of jump in with, uh, with any thoughts.
0: Beautiful. So I have jotted down two questions um one is you mentioned the challenges um you experienced psychologically when you uh, found out you weren't the best football player for Mm -hmm. you specifically what were those psychological challenges
1: um so for me one of the things that i because, because I, at the school um, I've been at previously because it was a rugby school I'd always been at the top so I would never had to really challenge for my position I would never had to really try very hard in training naturally you know, like, I enjoy playing matches and I never trained that hard um, because my place is always kind of guaranteed whichever team I've been in it's been a long, a long, long time since I kind of tried very, very hard to get into a team um, psychologically for me so what that meant was when I went across to uni and I wasn't in the best team, I really struggled to to change my attitude in training and try and fight a lot harder because I'd not done I'd not done that since I was like age thirteen because I just had it, it, it easy the entire time. So what happened was is that actually I got put in the third team. I had opportunities potentially to move up towards the second team and actually do better, but I didn't put the, the work in, not because I didn't want to, but because I just couldn't force myself to, to make like the extra five yards running or make the small margins of difference in effort or a bit in training, which, which I had not done previously. And it sounds really, really stupid when you say that, it because like, it's like, you know, why can't you just try harder? Why can't you just do that? But it, the difference was, it wasn't the fact that I didn't want to. It wasn't you know, it wasn't like you know, I didn't want to improve or anything like that. It was psychologically I wasn't atta- I wasn't paying attention enough in training because every time I turned up to training, I was on kind of 70% brain capacity. Mm-hmm. And that's what it'd been like for years and years and years. And I gone through these years of conditioning and that kind of thing. And then I was chucked into this this environment which is more intense, a lot harder, better footballers, and I was really struggling to basically, you know actually be like, I need to focus all the time in training and I need to put all my work ethic in. Because I was used to kind of turning up to training, just you know, messing about a little bit, enjoying playing you know football and then really focusing on, on match day and having my focus all there. Um, and that for me was really, really difficult psychologically. The other thing as well was actually that part of the culture at university for, for sports is there's a lot of drinking and there's a lot of emphasis on the social thing. And when you go to that completely different environment, whereas at school it's all about, you know, playing, there's no drinking or anything like that, and then you go to university, everyone's like, actually, yeah, you know what, we've lost 6-0 today, but we're going to go have a drink anyway <laughs> after the game. The, the emphasis and the, the pressure that you would have to perform and win goes because no one actually cares that much in the lower teams. So I've gone from this kind of environment where I cared a lot about winning, the other people in my team cared a lot about winning, uh, I was constantly in the team all the time, didn't have to try very hard. And now nobody cares about winning. I had to try really, really hard if I wanted to get into a team where people did care about winning. And actually it was socially acceptable for me and it was acceptable amongst the team if I had a bad performance that no one would care afterwards. So it was it was a completely different change of change of atmosphere. And that was fundamentally something that I never psychologically adjusted to over time. But I never psychologically adjusted to, to uni football. In terms of the, 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 well, just the requirements. But
0: yeah. yeah. Wow. And before I ask the question, um, you will you tell us later about how you sort of grew through those teams, or was that did you play for a couple of years?
1: Um, so, yeah, with the with, so with with the football for me, um, I. um Unfortunately for me, it it kind of ended uh, because I tore my ACL. Um, so I suffered a really really bad injury, uh, which is which is kind of leads on to, to the to the next kind of thing I was gonna going talk about, which for for me was was coming back from injury. And um, but unf- yeah, unfortunately um, I, I tore my ACL, and it was a really really daft way that I did it because it wasn't anything to do with playing football. It was to do with this. Um, when I was, you know, I was trying to make friends at uni, so I wanted to get involved with the social type of thing. Sorry, the social things. And what happened was, is that I was in the car with a, a bunch of third years from uni. I was a first year. And they'd kind of taken me under their wing a little bit. But one of them, they're having a laugh at a joke on the way out from training. And one of them, you know, said, oh, look, we're not going to stop the car from moving here. We're going to, you're going to have to get out while the car's moving. And, you know, I was like, I don't really want to do that. And, you know, somebody else was like, another first year was like, I don't really want to do that. But you know we didn't really have a choice, and it was you in that moral dilemma of you don't really have any friends. So, do you do that and risk you know injury, uh, or do you not and then risk not having the friends at the end of it? I risked it, and ultimately I tore my ACL. As the back wheel of the car kind of buckled my knee, uh, it went over my ankle, and my knee buckled, and that's that's how I tore my ACL, which is really really dumb um, in terms of you know <laughs> a way to way to have basically a career-ending injury from it. Um, but yeah that, that for me was then, then really really difficult um, dealing dealing with that For in terms of football was such a big part of my identity of who I was like everybody in my school before I knew me as a footballer all my friends knew me as a footballer like that's the you know those are the two things that would go and come on and footballer would go next to each other mm. and then, sub- then suddenly I couldn't play football even. and I was going what on earth am I going to do with my life
0: I was like, my entire
1: life was just like, I want to play football to as high a level as I can. And then suddenly I'm like, I'm not going to be able to play football. I'm going to have to think about what I want to do for a living as like a job, what I want to do for a hobby, my like different friendship groups, like people who aren't necessarily playing football. I got to the point where I kind of stopped watching a lot of football because I found it really, really frustrating mm. watching professional players and then, then not playing well. And me getting really, really annoyed at the fact that, like, I, when I was younger, would have given my all to play professionally. And even if I was losing a game, I'd have given 110% in that environment just to get a shot at playing professionally. And yet, I was seeing these professionals at the time, whilst I was injured, not giving 100%. You know, and ov- obviously, there's, you know, not really any correlation. But for psychologically, for me, it was really, really difficult that, that, that period of, of having that part of your identity just kind of stripped away from you. Um, And just because, you know, uh, because at the time I was very, very desperate about just trying to get friends and trying to have some social life because I didn't have any friends during first year, so that was why it was really, really difficult. Yeah. yeah.
0: (laughs) Oh, gosh, that sounds, yeah, it's a catch 22. And while it appears to be dumb at, at that point, it's really, I can imagine it being really hard for someone, right? Like if you're trying to make friends and the social pressures are there. To be doing such things, and you back out at that moment, then you know what is it? Yes. Yeah. Um, before you go, fir- uh, you go any further. I'd like to ask. Mm-hmm. You mentioned a couple of your friends um, mm-hmm. were introverts, and it was the hardest thing to do is just go and talk to someone. Um, and you talked about you know instagram the superficial sort of friendships compared to actual meaningful friendships how Mm -hmm. yeah how do you see that playing out for yourself like at the age of 18 compared to 19.
1: okay yeah no that's a very very good question um so for me when i was 18 when i was at uni like i said i didn't have any friends and um you know, I, after obviously after I got the in, injury as well, I obviously lost a lot of that football social group as well. So I actually really didn't have many people. Mm. Um Also, coincidentally at the time, just for painting the picture, um I also uh, basically had a, an incident with somebody on my course. Incident. I had the kind of a very difficult relationship with somebody on my course. Um, uh, they they were in a relationship at the time, but it was very 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 difficult essentially what happened was is that uh, there were emotions were kind of shared uh, and explained to each other and that kind of thing but fundamentally she wasn't going to leave her boyfriend what that resulted in for me then was um, I was having to encounter somebody in my course who knew who I had a lot of feelings for they had a lot of feelings for me but ultimately it wasn't going to work out mm. that as a result led me to become incredibly depressed because it was somebody that I kept somebody that I connected with at university which I hadn't connected with anybody else and then that was it, that all her friends hated me and that they were on my course. so when I turned up to lectures and that kind of thing, I'd, I'd walk in and they'd all stare at me and I'd just be there kind of not having any mates, like having to go sit on my own and try and find... So at the time I was going through a very very difficult period and I was very very heavily depressed um, and I think in 2017 February anyway I got diagnosed with clinical depression so it was it was around that time I was I was uh, I was depressed. What that meant was is that what I was doing in terms of my interactions with friends and trying to meet people was I was trying to feel good about just anything. So what I would do then is I didn't I was really you know I had quite high anxiety. I didn't really want to go out, out and about too much because I didn't want to bump into people that I knew or anything like that. So I would try and make friends through social media. So what I did was I tried to message a lot of people through social media and try and have you know connections through that, but it was one of those encounters where I didn't really know the people that were who I was messaging or anything like that. So for me, I was just hoping for any response to try and feel good. Even if it was like, hey, how are you? And someone just puts good. I was like, that was really good for me. I, was like, I felt really happy at the time because of how low I was feeling. So at the time when I was about 18, 19, my attempts to make friends and that kind of thing, because my anxiety was quite high and I didn't really want to go and meet people in person, I was sending a lot of messages through social media, Going through things like dating apps, trying to find, you know, trying to speak to people that way, which for me is like not a way that I would normally operate. But at the time, because I was so anxious, I, I was going, going about it that kind of way. Now, um, I think now recently, so earlier this year, I started, well, I started and finished the job uh, uh, at Waitrose. Um, but that was a similar, if you can imagine, going to a completely different environment, which I'm not used to, similar to me going to university. Mm-hmm. How, how I approached the university one I was very, very anxious, very, very introverted, messaged a lot of people through social media, didn't have much face-to-face interaction with people. Whereas when I've gone into this completely new environment, which I'm not used to, complete beginner in, um, and I've gone and made uh, two, three really good friends through there, just through turning up, turning up to work, chatting to people about what's going on with them and having these more meaningful conversations and, and not messaging them and trying to contact them through social media. And if he thinks, like, for example, when you're sat there waiting around and you're not really doing anything, like you're waiting for the shift to start or whichever, mm-hmm. you, instead of sitting there with your phone trying to message other people who aren't there, I would, I would kind of, you know, try and get to know more more about them and just say, you know, where am I actually from? In turn, I managed to, I found out that one of, the other, uh, one of the other people there, she went to Swansea University as well at the same time as me, and she also knew a lot of people on my course. So it was, like, one of these weirdest, like, uh, kind of moments of, you know, where you, uh, oh, I can't remember the, I can't remember, but it, basically it was just a really, really weird moment where it was just kind of like, oh, wait, what, really? Like, you know, and it's something that I would have never been able to do when I was 18 because I was too anxious and afraid to, to speak to people that I didn't know and just have general chats with them about what they were doing, what their plans for life were, like, you know, what their kind of, you know, career path was. Like where they've been, things they've done, the kind of person they were. And then, as you get to know them a bit more, like, you know, you get to know, you know, things about their their family and, you know, more personal things, you know, like, for example, like, you know, their parables on unwell, that kind of thing. Like, so, you see them and you're like, oh, bro, I heard your dad was really unwell. How is he? And that's how you started about these more meaningful relationships. And that's what it was for me is that I kind of learned that art of slowly getting to know people more naturally in a more natural setting, as opposed to just messaging people straight off the bar on social media in this kind of gung-ho approach and just hope that they would respond and that would be it, boom, like we'd have a friendship. Mm. Um, and that's, that's the lesson I kind of learned. Instead of going for this instant trying to get a friendship, just letting it build gradually over time. Um, and but sorry, the one thing as well I wanted to incorporate that is how for, for us having great social media, everything on social media is instant. You get instant gratification through social media. Um, for anybody that knows as well, uh, there's a talk by Simon Sinek on this. Um, he's very, very good. And I kind of I listened to a few of his things, but essentially, he's right in saying that it's very, very easy for us through social media to get instant gratification. Like, for example, if you want to order a taxi, just get it straight away. You know, get an Uber. Uh, for example, even things like dating, like you just swipe right on Tinder and that's it. Like, boom, you don't even have to go up and just be like, hey, <laughs> how are you? <laughs> yeah, you don't have to have these awkward interactions anymore. So, for a lot of people, they expect instant reward. But the things that you don't get instant reward for are relationships and job satisfaction. Written. And I think it cannot be more evident for for relationships in that having seen me go through this very, very, uh, like I said, gung-ho, direct approach of trying to build relationships and just be like, you know, send two messages and be like, yeah, we're best friends. Mm-hmm. You know, realizing that it didn't work and that they need to grow more naturally and then having, you know, evidence that we've gone back into what we've chosen and seeing it grow over time and, and you know, becomes friend, friends that way. And I think for a lot of people, you know, at my kind of age as well or, or younger is that they have to go through that learning process later on and things like relationships that they take time to grow and not everything happens instantly. And that's been a really, really difficult lesson, I think. And that resonates, I think, with quite a few people in my kind of age category.
0: Absolutely. That's a really, yeah, well-articulated sort of response to the question. Thank you. Um, My other question, okay, so this is in two parts. So when you're 18 and you need to go up to a person, you're super anxious about how you're going to strike up a conversation, what does that anxiety actually look like present as in your body? And mm-hmm. yeah, I I would love to try and understand what are the thoughts that go through your mind at that stage?
1: <laughs> okay. Um, okay. I, yeah. Yeah. I've got some, I've got, I've got a couple of good, good stories about, about, about anxiety. Uh, so, so, okay. So it's like an overview for, you know, like going up to somebody to go speak to somebody, I think, um, I think I remember, I remember I think it was probably in, in, in like a bar or that kind of, that kind of environment. I think I saw somebody that I kind of recognised. So I went up to go, to go speak to them and obviously at the time I was, you know, something in my head and you're looking at the person thinking, right, I'm going to go up to them, I'm going to say something, you know, like, what am I going to say? I have no idea. And then. And you're kind of walking closer and closer and closer and you're kind of starting to sweat a bit more and you start you know thinking wait i haven't thought of anything to say why am i still walking towards them why am i still walking towards them and then you get there and you kind of say oh hi i know you and they're like i, I, don't, I don't know you and i was like uh um you, you where do i know you from and it's just this kind of you like freaking out, and like you have no idea what to say to the person. I think she responded in the end, just saying, um, "Oh, I think I think we're on the same course." And I was like, "Oh, oh, uh, yeah, cool." And then that was it, and that was the end of the conversation. And it was this, you know, once once it was done, you were like, "Okay, thank god." But at the time, you were just when you were, you know, trying to having to to go strike up a conversation with somebody. Like that in that kind of direct way, where you know it's not as though somebody's introducing to you, you know, taking the edge off it. It's literally just you and them. The anxiety level was obviously sky high. You know, things like you're you're, you're sweating, your mind is going absolutely loopy. But afterwards is the is the biggest one um in terms of the impact it has because you're then like oh my god i'm like i can never speak to that person again next time i go into a lecture i, I can't even look at them they'll be so embarrassed like they're gonna go tell their friends about me in terms of like oh like uh you know this guy's such a weirdo and this kind of thing and it's just so debilitative debilitative from that, that kind of perspective i think one of the one of the stories to do with the to do with anxiety that i had was um when i was at um, so when I was at uh, uni, I lived about 20 minutes away from the, 20 minutes walk from the, the supermarket. Mm. I remember at the time I was, you know, in the wake of all this stuff to do with the, the, the girl and I was very, very anxious about kind of going out and seeing people on my course and having to have these conversations with people, you know, these kind of small chats and that kind of thing. So I like walking into town. The night before, I think I'd had, uh, I would had a very, like a bit of a breakdown. Uh, in, in public and I was kind of you know very very upset and it was, yeah uh, but anyway I managed to get I got back home and it was all fine the next day I needed to go out to get food I was very very anxious so I started walking to, to Tesco's. I think it was about the fifth person that I that I crossed on my way to, to Tesco it was right outside the front of the store and it's the fifth person that kind of just looked at me slightly funny and in that instant I was like oh my god they know me I was like they know me Wait no 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 they they must have seen me yesterday how do they know me like they I've never seen them before so they must be a stranger I was like they must have seen me yesterday when I was really really upset and when I was broken down and I thought I was on my own and everyone you know I was like oh my god okay oh my god oh my god They're like are they on my course do they know people on my course are they going to start telling other people on my course they, you know how is how is this going to move about in terms of you know are they going to share all this information and it got to the point where I was freaking out so hard just from one person looking at me slightly weirdly but I I walked all the way to the front of the shop led to Tesco's and then I turned around I couldn't go into the shop because I was so anxious and I was so paranoid about you know things which were not the case at all that I had to walk all the way back home uh, and, and just didn't get any food so I did a 40 minute trip and didn't get any food just because I was concerned because somebody looked at me funny and it was you know it was just it was so kind of scary, and then the, the other one as well was um, the other one, which is just really really dumb. But just to kind of exemplify for, for introverts a bit more, I think is um, in my flat at, at uni. I obviously didn't get on with my mates too well. I say the mates. I think I with my flatmates too much there. Uh, so I think I was sat in my room, and I think I was playing Football Manager with a friend uh, over the. You know, we were both playing online at the same time. I think we were chatting on the phone. Anyway, basically, I hadn't eaten all day. Every time I wanted to go into the kitchen to get food, somebody was in there and I didn't really want to go have a conversation with them, wasn't really sure what to say, and I didn't really have that interaction. So it got to the point where I started to feel physically faint because I hadn't eaten anything. And I was like, got up to go get to go to the kitchen. And like, I heard somebody in there and I was like, I can't go in. And it got to the point where my friend was on the phone. He could physically hear me, like, starting to pass out. He was like, you need to get food. So in the end, I, um, I ordered a takeaway. <laughs> Which took forty five minutes to arrive instead of go instead of going going into the kitchen to get food. And that's when it's like. It's just not wanting to have this interaction and doing anything it takes to not have those interactions. And it's just how you know, exemplified exemplifying how how debilitative it can be for people. You know, I was fortunate I only went through that kind of level anxiety, not wanting to have this conversation, that kind of thing for a short period of time, but for other people they go through it. You know they're still going through it or they've gone through it for years and you can just see how debilitating it can be just even things like getting food you know just not wanting to have these interactions and conversations so yeah like those are my kind of two two stories
0: oh, wow and, and so many people just they don't realize right like if if you don't ask the question what is it like the pre and the post for that mm-hmm. matter of that interaction people could just yeah they might have their own ideas or just go oh just giving me a cold shoulder they're not worth yeah. the interaction, sort of thing that's the other assumption I suppose that's made
1: it's yeah it, it it really is that is that people just don't don't realize and you know a lot of time I think people perceive very anxious people as being rude because they kind of don't want to have that that interaction and actually if you go up to them and speak to them like for example if anybody went up to them and spoke to me I'd be able to have the conversation with them, but it was just, I couldn't initiate the conversation. I couldn't put myself into that environment. Uh, and, you know, that's, that was really, really difficult for me. And a lot of people, you know, like I say more introverted people don't, it, don't like putting themselves into that environment. But if you come over and speak to them and start to talk to them about stuff, then they start to open up a bit more. And, you know, and that's when you start to really, really get to know people a bit better. Uh, but yeah, it, yeah. It's just people, people don't know. And then they just kind of, uh, they just kind of think the other person's, you know, not interested or, or rude. And then, you
0: know, exactly. it, it, it's
1: really, really difficult to see. Yeah.
0: yeah. And the, my other part of that question, or even a separate one is meaningful friendships or meaningful relationships.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We say that phrase, but actually it seems quite subjective, right? Like what might be a meaningful relationship to you might be something that's different for me. And even through ages, as you get older, what is an actual meaningful relationship? So my question to you is, at this point right now, what's a meaningful relationship to you?
1: A meaningful relationship to to me is a relationship where I can share my life and my stories. And my friends will not judge me for it. Whether I've made mistakes, whether I've done really, really good things or whichever, they won't judge me for things that I've done. Uh, not to say that I've obviously done loads of bad things. That's not the case. But it's just that, uh, you know, a, a meaningful relationships are where you can, you can trust the other person. You know, I'm not just talking about uh, actual relationships with you, you know, male, female, male, male, female, female, but actually just with friends. It's just where you can trust and share your stories, your experiences, and you can talk openly about, you know, these kind of perceived, i say deeper, deeper topics or harder, harder topics, things like mental health and that kind of thing, things that people would naturally shy away from. You can have these, these conversations. I think something that wouldn't be meaningful is, is one where we exchange messages on social media, but we never really meet up in person or we never really make the time to have, you know, FaceTime chats or Zoom calls or, all those kind of things for me i can't i find it really really difficult to, to talk and communicate through social sorry through just messaging because you lose two-thirds of the interaction mm. you know you just have the words you know whereas you know when you're in person you get the words the visuals uh, and the the noise the sound as well you know so. but for for me that's those are the things and also i think the, fundamentally the biggest thing as well is is making time for others, is is the making time aspect. Because, you know, life is very, very busy. Life is chaotic. Things get lost, you know, I'm at that stage in terms of my life where, all you know, some of my childhood friends and that kind of thing, we all start to grow apart, go and do different things. Life becomes busy, we get into relationships, you know, we start new jobs, we take on a lot of different challenges, you know, so we start to lose communication with people. So that's why it's so important where you have meaningful friendships and meaningful relationships that so you make time to meet up and catch up with each other, and share each other, you share your life stories. And that's what I think a meaningful relationship looks like to me right now.
0: Beautiful. Um, now, before I, I will always have questions, so. <laughs> um Sorry,
1: I love questions.
0: <laughs> what are the points did you have to share with us before I ask you all of my other questions?
1: Um, okay, so um, I think I think for me one of the one of the other things that I kind of want to talk about is this concept of uh, identity. Mm. Um, you know, who you identify as, uh, what per, you know, what kind of things make up you as an individual. For example, for me, um, previously for me, I was 100% my identity was football. I had like one identity, which is football. Now, so this is when I was 18, I had football. Now, football is part of my identity, but I also have, uh, I also have psychology, sports psychology. Uh, I'm also a carer as well, uh, I help look after my brother. Uh, I also now, I play a lot of chess as well, so that's definitely part of my identity. Um, I'm also looking at becoming a detective as well, so I've started going you know, a lot more towards that. And I've started to branch out to have more aspects of my identity, more things that make up me as an individual. You know, and then of course I've got uh, my mental health stuff as well. You know, I'm a very big advocate for mental health. And I, uh, I'm trying to to set up a set up a, an, an Instagram account called Life on Mars where I can share my stories and also talk to my friends and you know, casual setting like this, so they can talk about their experiences and that kind of thing. Things that resonate with a lot of other people, you know, not too dissimilar from what you're doing here. Mm -hmm. You know, so, you know, that's the, those are the the kind of different things that I've got with my identity now. Uh, Whereas previously, I obviously only had, only had football. And then I think a lot of the time what people, uh, one of the issues with identity when you're growing up is that people identify as one individual thing. Uh, so they say, they say they really really like maths so they identify as like a mathematician therefore they think they have to go down a career path involving maths mm-hmm. uh, naturally traditionally like when you're kind of in your teenage years you go through all these different tried and error of taking on new identities that's why you have like the cliche like gothic phase and that kind of thing uh, you know people trying to figure out who they are but as we're going in more into kind of further education more people are you know going into education later on this concept of figuring out what job you want to do based on your identity and who you are keeps getting prolonged because people are given more opportunities to try and figure out what they want to do. So what that means is is that people are figuring out the job they want to do at a later date, more and more and more. Whereas traditionally, obviously, people I'd say like my parents, like once they finished university degree, that was it. They knew the job they wanted to do. They were going working towards that job, and it was very very straight. Whereas for me, only this year, you know, I'm 22. This year, I've decided that I want to be a detective and I didn't want to do sports psychology, despite the fact I'm doing a master in sports psychology. You know, so this this kind of change in terms of what you want to do with your career and this pressure, you know, to, to know who you are, what career you want to do, uh, I would say it could not be greater for people who are 18 to 25. And that there's an expectation and this is you know highlighted across social media where people go to university they come out of university and you hear these select stories of people that go straight to the job they want and they're earning 30 grand a year or something like you know, or, you know they're going straight into exactly what they want to do and they've got their life nailed. you know the same thing with, with relationships being displayed with social media like somebody's you know in a relationship long-term relationship they're starting to get married you know they're doing different different <laughs> stages in their life you know people moving out getting their, getting their own flat these kind of things all of this all of the all of these changes but career and your identity for me is the really really big big challenge um and i think a lot of people try and figure out who they are too quickly and jump into a career choice because they feel like they need to do that to catch up keep up with other people whereas actually if they took a step back and looked at it a lot of other people don't know what they're doing either i know so many people that. That, you know, I've come out from university, gone into a job, and then now they're looking back and going, actually, maybe I'll go to a master's, maybe I'll go to a different degree, or maybe I'll just go do an entirely different career altogether because I've tried this and I don't like it. And yet they feel emotionally drained and they feel you know very depressed at the fact that they feel like they're behind where they should be. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's it's getting into this into this scale of that there's no time scale for you discovering your identity or you know what makes up you as an individual and subsequently what career choice you want to do. And it's it's basically just giving people more time to make these decisions and having less pressure on them to have to go and feel like they have to go and find something that they resonate with at an early stage and do for the rest of their life. Uh, and that's one of the big, big pressures that I think uh, needs to be discussed more often, you know, more, um, you know, so people feel there's kind of less, less pressure to have to go and do something which they're not sure about.
0: Absolutely. So I'll go a decade further from where you are and say it's a very similar thing, right? So the society or the social trajectory says you have to go to uni, get a job, get married, have kids, get a house, all of those things. Very, yeah, quite a linear sort of system. Yeah. Yeah. Do it. And not everyone is there. But in fact, now more than ever, there are not many people w- or, or they're challenging that trajectory and going, well, why do I have to do it? And because of those challenges, and we have so many opportunities in today's world, right? As you've said, the difference yeah. between you and your parents, the opportunities are just, they're abundant. If you're in yeah. the, depending on what part of the world you are, to go, you have 10 million choices and that in itself probably isn't such a great thing because then you have the choices too much,
1: right? Exactly, yeah. Um
0: but I and I've spoken to people in their forties and in their fifties and in their sixties, and each each sort of succeeding decade, they're going, Yeah, no, we shouldn't necessarily be following the social trajectory. It's what works for you. Because the pressures and demands of today's world are very different from what they used to be. I'm not saying they're easier or they're harder, they're, they're just different.
1: Yeah, no, 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 I, I agree. It's it's an ever-changing picture. Um, and, you know, you're con- every generation is is constantly having to learn a different way of navigating their route through life. Uh, and, you know, having these expectations or feeling this pressure that they, they have to have navigated it the same way that they're... You know that their, their parents did or you know, predecessors did um you know and kind of actually just accepting the fact that you know they'll go at their own pace and they'll navigate in their own way and actually once they do that you probably find that you will navigate it a lot quicker and figure out a lot quicker if you give yourself more time but it's just yeah it's that, that ever-changing picture of each generation going through something different you know, like our parents didn't go through a generation with social media mm-hmm. you know you know when i have children my children will go through something entirely different. There'll be, you know, a new era of social media or something even more, you know. Absolutely. You know, so it, it's it's an ever changing, ever changing picture.
0: see it. Um, okay. So did you have more points you wanted to share with us? Because I do have a couple of questions. Uh, no, I'll tell
1: you what. Far, far away. I yeah. I'm, yeah okay. Far away. <laughs>
0: So um, the, I'll take you back to your ACL injury. And you said during your recovery, you were diagnosed with clinical depression. Um, what what was that period actually like?
1: Um, what, what, the injury or being diagnosed
0: with uh, depression? Yeah, both? Both, both. So that sort of okay. journey from injury.
1: Okay, so... So, so I was diagnosed with a depression in, in February and I probably got my leg injured in April. April. So I, I'd kind of already been depressed before I got my my, my leg injured. Um, and then in, in addition to that, I didn't actually realise that it was my ACR. I went to a physio and he basically said, uh, it's just some bruising around the joint. It's nothing massive. And it was only until November time that I actually had the operation of my knee for my ACR. So actually it was probably like a year and a half, I was actually injured or not able to play football um like at, at all long time. And then across that entire period I was you know, I was obviously still depressed as well. Um initially in February I um I sought out counselling. So I went and had counseling. I think I got given four sessions. The university was really really good in the fact that you could go to um student services they had on site kind of they're not counsellors, but they were basically people that sit, sit and listen to you and, and talk you through stuff. And then if you were really, really bad or, you know, you were suicidal or whichever, then you'd get uh, moved on to the counsellors. Um, so that's, that's where I went. And it was really, they were really, really good and really, really helpful in helping me paint a different light on what I'd, you know, on, on everything, paint a different light on basically everything that had happened um, previously with me. I always took a lot of onus on and took a lot of responsibility for, for things that actually I shouldn't have you know um and it was it was kind of relieving me of that pressure of feeling like you know I can't control other people's actions and that kind of thing so from a counseling perspective like that taught me a lot of lessons individually for that but fundamentally you know I, I got injured after that um I still had all the same issues that I had beforehand in terms of you know I still didn't have any friends I still had this altercation with this guy on my course uh, my brother was still unwell uh, you know, none of these things have changed fundamentally. So although the counseling was really, really good and helped me cope a lot better with that, um, the counseling actually finished, I think, around about April time as well. Um, the next year of of not being able to play football, having to kind of look after my brother a bit more, still having to deal with these people on course and that kind of thing was incredibly, incredibly stressful. I basically had to change the way I operated so normally I'd spend all my time around football so my day would be planned around football when I could go to football training sessions then I'd do work now I was having to set an entirely new routine so I'd have to get up go on my crutches um, I'd have to go to the library sit down for a few hours and study in an environment which I'd never been before I'd never really gone to the library before mm. going there and formulating that routine helped give me I want to say a purpose or meaning. It wasn't the fact that actually if I went to the library and, and you know did some work that like me doing that work gave me some form of meaning or purpose. It was the fact that the routine and the fact that I knew I was progressively working towards my recovery from football and I was working towards this goal of my, uh, of my course, my degree and also just in terms of me trying to become a better person was the thing that, that drove me there and the thing that gave me a purpose and meaning. Like I said, I, my identity was entirely football. So to have that stripped away from me basically meant I was questioning what on earth I was gonna do with my life. And fundamentally I was. I had no idea kind of who I was at that point in time. But how, creating that structure for myself of getting up in the morning at a certain at a certain time and just going through the motions sometimes. You know, I didn't enjoy studying. I didn't enjoy going to the library, but just doing it so that I felt, felt some sense of momentum and that I could move forward. You know, ultimately, I, I, you know, I, I, I'm not going to use my sports science degree. I'm not going to use my sports psychology degree now. I'm going to go and become a detective. So ultimately, actually, me going to the library, and working on that stuff, had next to no effect. You know, on, on my career path, but it was just, it gave me a sense of purpose and meaning, which I hadn't had in my previous time, in my previous bit of time at, at university. So creating that routine was really important for me. The other thing as well was I started to avoid watching watching football sometimes. That was because obviously that just brought my emotions down, which made me feel really really depressed about the fact that I was injured. And also just reminded me that I couldn't do the thing that I really, really loved to do. And so obviously that was really, really difficult not watching the football, but I was also buoyed by the fact that Chelsea, the team I support, were having a really, really bad season, so it wasn't great watching anyway. (laughs) Um, So there was was that as well. Um, And then in terms of how... In terms of in terms of how I released my brother, obviously my situation, my brother is very, uh, you know, very um, what well, ongoing. But at the time, um, having that situation, my brother provided me with a different focus. Um, one of the things I were like at the time, um, my brother was uh, throwing up after meals quite a lot, so he essentially he was he was he was displaying bulimia, but it was it was the cause was. Um, Yeah, I think he had colitis, which is like an infection in the gut. Um, So he was throwing up a lot after me. The girl that I had the previous altercation with, she was bulimic. So basically, she was throwing up quite a lot of the time after food. She wasn't eating properly, um, and she really, really struggled with that. She then, at the time, didn't really talk to anybody about it. She mentioned it to her boyfriend, but her boyfriend didn't really support her. She mentioned it to her parents and her parents didn't really support her. So I was the kind of person that helped her out quite a lot with that. Mm. Psychologically then for me, once that all ended, it was then I'd gone from seeing one person being bulimic and then I wanted to see my brother being bulimic. And that was a constant reminder of everything else that happened with the girl all the time and all the negative effects of that. So, you know, Despite the fact that I was I was depressed and gone through this and I gone to counselling, I was now faced with more stuff that I had to cope with psychologically. Mm. Having a routine is not going to fix that, you know. Ha, ha, just just occupying yourself and making yourself busy isn't going to isn't going to fix that. So for me, I had to invest it into into something different and invest my time. And what I did was I was like, you know, I couldn't be there for the other person for the girl, so I'm going to make sure I'm going to be there for my brother. I'm going to try and do my best for him. And that's what I did was I invested my time there uh, and I tried to focus more on how I could uh, maintain that more happy relationship with my brother at the time. And obviously through that, through building that, that, you know, reconstructing that, what I would say is a damaged relationship at the time with my brother um, and creating that more meaningful relationship, which I then soon, you know, became able to replicate, you know, moving forward as well, really helped me give, give me a sense of purpose and the fact that I was able to get back to helping somebody as well. And that displayed to me and showed me my purpose, or I say the thing that I actually, you know, my purpose in life, which is to help other people. Mm. And up until the point I was 18, 19, I had no idea that that's actually what I really, really valued that life was helping other people or helping others who are struggling. And that's led me to where I am now with my establishing of my uh, social media account, you know, talking about mental health, um, I'm always there to, to how people are always talking to my mates so that, you know, they're always giving me their, I say giving me their, we're always talking about, you know, different issues, their troubles and that kind of thing. and am always giving them advice, listening to them, mm-hmm. you know, and pointing them in the right direction as well. You know, up until that point in time, I had no idea that that's, that's what that gave me meaning. But that's fundamentally the really, the, the one thing that really helped me through that entire period was was, you know, me finding out that my inner, Calling, so to speak, as cringe as it sounds, uh, was to, to help help my brother, um, and um, and that's what I was able to do. And to, to just kind of end on a, a you know a nice note as well. I um, I remember going to a a, a CAMS uh, appointment, which is basically for a, um so a, psychi- a psychiatrist. There it was a, to see basically our family to so, uh, basically just to do with my uh, my brother and his kind of mental health. Um, And it was, we had to sit down my brother into another room, a psychiatrist, and there was some junior psychologist there. And basically, for the first time, I think, ever I'd kind of spoken about my brother to somebody who wasn't my parents in this room in front of my parents, talking about all these things that I realized about my brother and talking to this in a very, very open way and just shedding light on the entire situation. Um, And then, you know, at the end of it, for for my, my dad to turn around and say, look, you were never knew you could do that and I would that was amazing the fact that you were able to just highlight all of the things that have been going on and just you know be so insightful about all the things Piers was going through And I up until that point in time never had a clue that I was really good at that, that I was very perceptive on that mm. you know and it's so uh, it's that kind of emphasis of you know through what was you know the most difficult period of my life in terms of not being able to play football being depressed having to deal with all this you know, stuff in my course, not having friends, all of this stuff. Finding something so simple in the fact of just helping somebody else. So it led me to kind of turn my life around from that point of view. I think is really, really, I don't know, just kind of, <laughs> Very nice. Yeah. 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 But yeah, yeah. No, that's, yeah. So that's uh, there. You go.
0: <laughs> okay. And the final wrap-up question is... Mm-hmm three three main key takeaways now, mm-hmm. one for the likes of myself, who doesn't know what someone with anxiety might be going through, um, okay. and the person might find it difficult to initiate inf- um, an interaction, and you know they might seem cold or whatever. What should I be mindful of and then the second part of the three key takeaways is for someone who is introverted and who is anxious, what can they do to, yeah, help themselves initiate initiating okay. action?
1: So for one of the things uh, that's really, really important, I think, when you encounter, you know, anybody, you know, just full stop is to have this open perception and just to, give them leeway. And basically what I'm saying is give them, give them a chance. Somebody who's very, very anxious, they will not come up and speak to you and that kind of thing normally. They will not open conversations. So they may come off as rude, they may come, come off as a uh, push-offish, push, you know. So you as individuals need to have a very, very open mind. Uh, and you need to be very open to the fact, uh, open them to the fact that they might not be in a good place themselves a lot of the time when people go through mental health difficulties they really really struggle to act nice to other people who aren't because you have this innate hatred or uh, you know you feel like you've been really really hard done by other people don't understand what you're going through it's really really difficult for them to know what you're going through so what's the point in trying to explain to them you know they can't help you that kind of thing so you you tend to avoid conversations and sometimes be sometimes a bit rude if you see somebody being quite abrupt being, you know, kind of very, very stressed. You see things like, you know, they're sweating, biting their nails, you know, kind of uh, constantly tapping their fingers together or something like that. You know, somatic symptoms of anxiety. Um, just go over to them and just say, Hey, you okay? And just, you know, and if they go, Yeah, yeah, fine, fine. Just, you know, start to open up about yourself and start to talk about something that you've been through or some funny story or something, and share a part of your life with them. If you open up and share part of your life, they will share part of their life with you. And that's the best way to, to go and speak to somebody who's struggling with anxiety or that kind of thing, is you go and share part of your life and they'll share part of theirs. It's really, really difficult otherwise to have to, to open up and have the conversation. And you just have to be very, very patient. On the flip side, for somebody who who you know has high anxiety, you know, trying to go and, and speak to new people, is um, is you basically have to accept the fact that not everybody's going to like you. There are going to be people that don't like you. There are going to be people where you go and say hi and they just turn around and walk away. (laughs) That is a fact of life. Not everybody's going to like you, but on the flip side, not everybody's going to hate you. And it is just, it's just the fact that just put yourself in an environment where you know nobody there, you know, you know nobody there around you and just go and say hello to somebody and just see what happens. And the more you put yourself in that environment, the more you put yourself out there, you know, and you, you have these, these short conversations of, hi, hi, how are you? Good. Um, I'm good. You know, you know, and they just chat about, I don't know, the sport or something on TV. Something just random. But even if you just get to high, high, that's a great start. And then that's where you pick up from. You say, okay, I got that far. How do I improve on that next time with the next person? Start off with people who completely pe- random strangers that you don't know, and just you put yourself in that environment. One of the things that uh, one of my sports psychologists was, was telling me at uni was um, somebody who's suffering with really, really high anxiety. What they do is, is, a, is a trick is they'll, they'll, um, they'll get them to, to dress up in some outfit, uh, you know, wear a massive hat, wear some flamboyant clothes or whichever. And then, you know, one of them said that they, they give them a lead and they tie a banana to the end of it. And what they do is they walk down the street and they're walking a banana. Right. And the whole point is that they look absolutely ridiculous. And the person who's anxious girl, is thinking, oh, my God, everybody's going to be, lo- everybody's going to be like, who the hell is this person? What the hell? Whereas in actual fact, most people just look at you and just go, oh, walking a banana. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and they just don't care at all. Mm. And it's, you know, it's just, it's just kind of, you know, re yourself and you're realizing actually a lot of people don't really care that much about you know things like you know you look like and that kind of thing and it's once you get past that you put yourself in that environment more and more and more you'll you'll start to you know you'll start to realize it yourself but yeah those are my kind of takeaway takeaway things for somebody you know with anxiety approaching people and somebody you know approaching somebody with
0: beautiful thank you so much hugo it's been an absolute honor and pleasure um chatting with you today and
1: i really Yes, stop recording. Yeah, likewise.